You know, the other thing that we always say is that diversity is not the goal. The world is diverse. It always has been. It's always going to be. Well, hey again, everyone, and welcome to another Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host, and here is this week's provocation. What if diversity is not the goal? That's the question that our two guests dive into in this, our 60th episode. Bruce and I chat with Homa Tavanger and Eric Dozier, who are collaborators at the Oneness Lab, where they, quote, seek to discover, learn, and live models of cohesion and unity toward building a better world, end quote. Together, Homa and Eric help schools and organizations unlock mindsets that are truly global in order to build our collective capacity to have the social, emotional skills needed simultaneously for global citizenship and local engagement. Homa is the author of Growing Up Global, Raising Children to Be at Home in the World, and Eric describes himself as cultural activist, singer-songwriter, and educator leveraging the power of music to promote healing, justice, and racial reconciliation and Eric has a great little riff in the middle of this podcast that I know you're going to love. This was a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Just a quick reminder that this episode is being brought to you by Change School. If you're looking for a powerful professional learning experience that can help you understand those challenges to school change even more deeply, our eighth cohort of Change School starts in mid-June 2019. You can get all the details at change.school. Bring some friends or even a team from your school to make the learning even better. And finally, don't forget that our first Modern Learners course on the topic of reimagining assessment is already online at modernlearners.com assessment. You can check out all the resources, programs, and events that we're offering at modernlearners.com. We have a whole new schedule of labs coming up, more courses, lots of stuff going on there. So please keep checking back. But for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Homa and Eric. Cheers, everyone. So welcome everyone to our latest Modern Learners podcast, and we are really excited um, this week to have a couple of people join us who I happened to meet when I was in San Francisco um, at a conference, and, and one of whom I met probably at one of my bucket list moments in my life when we both spoke at the podium in the United Nations, um, which was uh, such a thrill. So we'd like to welcome Homa Tavangar and Eric Dozier, and they are here to uh, help us go a little bit more deeply into the whole globalization and diversity conversation. And they have some very interesting ways of phrasing it and of pushing that conversation that I'm, I'm really excited to explore today. So thanks so much, you guys, for joining us. Uh, thanks for having us, man. Thank you. So, Homa, you wrote a book. Uh, you're gonna. You probably can't believe it's been ten years, right? But you wrote a book called "Growing Up Global," which I thought was a really interesting read when I was looking through some of it this week. And I just want to start this with a quote that you had at the beginning in your introduction that I thought really ties in very closely to the conversations we have here at Modern Learners and the things that we talk about in terms of how the world is shifting. And you said, we live in a rapidly changing world where we know that globalization shapes our daily lives and is a major determinant to one's financial and career success. At the same time, our borders seem more closed than they ever have been. The fears of terrorism, job outsourcing, and immigrants, legal or otherwise, along with less cultural and racial diversity in most American schools, colors public policy in our exposure to the world, which doesn't sound like too much has changed in the last 10 years. 
But I'm wondering if we could start there and just get a sense of when you look at the world now, today, what is it that you see? What is it that concerns you? And maybe what are some of the opportunities out there that maybe are uh, giving you some optimism in terms of the whole conversation about understanding different cultures and different people around the world? Oh, that's such a great Big question. And it's funny to hear that quote from 10 years ago, because it is, I, when I was writing Growing Up Global, it, the idea came to me just a year after 9-11. So I was very much in the post 9-11 kind of the world order that we were trying to figure out what that world was going to be. Now, looking back on that time, you know, it's almost like that was quaint in a way, because I feel like so much has happened um, since then. And I, I almost see, especially students, there's almost a hardening um, of attitudes since then. Um, at the same time, so I came to that book and I come to this idea deeply optimistic because what I see is that it doesn't take a lot to change and shift and even transform attitudes. And that's where I think Eric and I come to, are coming from with the Oneness Lab. And certainly Growing Up Global is sort of this deceptively simple manual for raising a global citizen. And since then, you know, there's so much that's been done and I do with schools, but I feel like there's this sort of view of history and view of sort of contemporary unfoldment of events that there are these sort of dual processes that are happening. On the one hand, there's this kind of destruction going on of old systems and, you know, whether it's education or justice or religion or politics, there's such disappointment and globalization, like the globalization that we thought when the Berlin Wall was falling, when the internet was invented, there was such a, or Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg talks about bringing people together and this great optimism, but it has been used for pretty nefarious means. So on the one hand, there's this sort of destructive, disappointing, deeply painful process that's happening. But then on the other hand, Anybody who's working with students and teachers and any literally, I think any other sector and I came to this work with a background in economic development and policy and international development. Um, you see that there are these incredible champions and heroes who are deeply creative and innovative and when I mean, the, the amount of sort of abundant thinking to make change and make things amazing is unlimited. And so, like, I use a lot of data points that are really simple, like Pew and Brookings have done research that if you have one friend, one interaction that's meaningful with somebody who is, say, you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in the middle of America, and you have a neighbor who is a Muslim, a Mexican, um, black, gay, something different from you that you might have had bias about. Knowing that one person can change your relationship to the entire population. Or the New York Times did a study where they found that 
if an American can find North Korea on the map, they don't want to bomb it anymore. So it's like that one little nudge takes you to a whole new place. And that's what's been so amazing and so hopeful about both the work in global citizenship and global competency development and in Deeper Than Diversity and the Oneness Lab is that we see this incredible capacity of human beings mm -hmm. who want to come together. So, Eric, maybe interested in hearing, you know, you talk a little bit about the reference that Homer made to the Oneness Lab. You know, how did you and uh, Homer start working together? Um, <laughs> what's the goal of that work and, and what does it look like? Well, I think, uh, you know, when uh, I guess it was about two or three years ago uh, at, at the People of Color Conference, uh, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Schools, is where we started kind of entertaining the idea of working together. But uh, oftentimes when we introduce our workshop, we usually say our kids are cousins. Uh, I'm actually, we're actually family members by marriage as well. <laughs> so, so that's another thing. My, my, my children call her auntie. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so which, which. Uh, uh, that's the best is, part. Yeah, that's the best part really is, uh, is the fact that we are, uh, that we are related. Uh, but, uh, but we started to think about how we could pull um, elements of what we both do together to take people through a, through a, through a different experience of, of oneness that pulls on different ways that we know things. Like when I do workshops and things like that, I always tell people is that we know things with more than our minds. Uh, it's not just a matter of, of, of looking at uh, text or reading data, but also, as Homa alluded to, is, is experiences of proximity, of being near to mm -hmm. other people and being near, near uh, them and interacting with them in different ways. So, so in our workshop, our Deeper Than Diversity workshop, we employ uh, music, we employ art, we employ meditation, um, so that we can unlock these other literacies that we have, but that we don't practice that much. Uh, most of the time when we're dealing with diversity issues uh, in our world, we're dealing with them uh, maybe through protest or maybe through, um, uh, through uh, information that is inside of a book. Um, but I've spent most of my life bringing people together in the context of the creative arts, context of the performing arts, whether it be theater or music. Uh, you know, I also, I have a background in public policy and theology. So we also pull from a lot of wisdom traditions. And so it really is a lab for us. And we, you know, we, we really want to take these, these, uh, these kind of, you know, oftentimes compartmentalized, uh, um, oftentimes uh, uh, often, uh, times divergent characteristics or as they're characterized anyway, uh, and bring them together so that people can interact with, with each other in revolutionary new ways. So, you know, we may have the participants paint together. Uh, when we were uh, at the National Association uh, Conference in Nashville, we had people put together collages that tell a story. Uh, that were combinations of uh, historical figures, 
stories that they wanted to tell and share with the community. Um, we sung with them. Uh, we put up some some uh, some interesting quotes, uh, meditated with them. We shared data with them, and then we let them process that as a community um, uh, in ways that you know maybe they hadn't traditionally thought of dealing with this particular issue of diversity. You know, the other thing that we always say is that diversity is not the goal. Uh, um, you know, we, 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 we talk a lot about the world and when we think about the world, the world is diverse. It always has been, it's always going to be, um, what is, what is, what, what is, I guess could be characterized as, as I put it this way, uh, an example that we use in our workshop is we talk about the American plantation system the slavery system. Um, and the slavery system here in America was diverse. It was an interaction of people from all over the world, indigenous people, um, black people that were, that were, that were, that were brought over from Africa, Europeans that came over all these. So that's a diverse ecosystem. The problem was, uh, that the relationships were not equitable. And so the key in these diverse spaces is to create, equitable relationships, relationships that spin around reciprocity, uh, that spin around friendship, that spin around love, and that spin around creating a family. Uh, because you do things for your family that you won't do for people that you don't know. And so if we can move people to that point, then you will begin to see communities transform. So that's kind of what informs our belief around the work that we do. I just want to reinforce one thing that Eric said. Um, when we, it, it's such a, it's almost like an interesting social experiment or psychological experiment that sometimes I'll mention to somebody, um, you know, we, we often call this experience, this workshop, diversity is not the goal. Mm -hmm. And then immediately we'll say, you know, diversity is not the goal. Think about it. The plantation was diverse. Mm -hmm. And then just pause and let it sink in. And people mm -hmm. realize that, you know, it's not the mere presence of different bodies in a space that is an accomplishment. And mm -hmm. um, so what is wrong with that picture? How do we move beyond that? And mm -hmm. so then you're talking about then relationship and how you build you know, it's, it's all these qualities of deep respect and like Eric said, reciprocity. So it's not a handout. It's not, a, you're not doing someone a favor. It's, <laughs> it goes both ways. And so we try to build out those elements and show, and we see that when people say who work together are sitting together, they're proximate. We use this word a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and they are thinking about this and also learning how to reflect so the practice of reflection in our hurried environments is often lost, especially mm -hmm. in a Western um, setting. You know, we're, we're in a hurry, we're on the clock, we've got so much to do. And so sometimes like taking one minute to just be quiet can be the longest minute. I think it's the longest minute in the United States is if you just are quiet for a minute mm -hmm. and let people think like it goes on forever. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, even modeling how to reflect 
is a powerful thing. And that could start with a quiet minute. Um, but it's this, it's thinking about um, things that have always been. And also, you know, the power of knowing a little history is really important. Yeah. So we kind of start with that. And then another thing is um, we chose this word and naming a, a project is always to me kind of tough and imperfect, but yeah. we landed on oneness lab and we have gotten a little pushback on the word oneness because people think of that as glossing over differences or maybe kind of, are you saying you're colorblind? And so number one, absolutely not. Like say, someone saying I'm colorblind is like the biggest step one. Do not say that. You're not colorblind. We see difference. We see color. Um, so that's not what oneness means. Um, we talk about it a little bit on our website, but it's really an idea of appreciating diversity and being able to work with each other through that. And it's something much deeper, deeper than diversity. Um, so we never want to come across as glossing over differences. We celebrate differences and, um, and people need to learn how to celebrate differences. That's something that especially in a country like the United States, where in many states, more like 90% of teachers are white. The national average is like 82%, I think. But mm -hmm. that's an uncomfortable conversation. So trying to pro provide some comfort in talking about what is uncomfortable, trying to mm -hmm. allow the space and time to um, build that out. So that's kind of what we mean by oneness, not sameness. It's really like the opposite. Right. Mm -hmm. So I have to say so much of the, what you both said resonates um, on, on a lot of different levels. I know just the reflective kind of quiet minute part mm -hmm. it, it, that happened this morning on a change school coaching call, you know, where we talk about really difficult things and sometimes people just need to sit in silence and think about those things and, and e even connect around that silence, you know, that, that there is a connection that can be made when no one's talking that I think is really interesting. And the other thing just personally that's really powerful for me is, you know, I, I live in a very lily white community that is upper middle class. My kids went to lily white schools. My son goes to a lily white college. I mean, I love it, but there's just not a lot of diversity. But what we yeah. did very intentionally, and you, you guys are, are doing it around art and music, what we did fairly intentionally was around sports, was around basketball. Yeah around you mm -hmm. know taking our kids to play on inner city teams in Trenton um, which is you know about a half an hour down the road or in Elizabeth where yeah. the level of basketball was better <laughs> number one but yeah. but also <laughs> but also the diversity was a really powerful aspect of that and it changed our mm -hmm. kids lives I mean our yeah. kids have deep friendships with people who look nothing like them and, mm -hmm. and it's an important part of who they are today, that they have some contextual understanding, at least, of, of you know, kids who come from different backgrounds, who have different experiences, yet they are teamed, you know, they are friends, and they have that, that unified goal that really pulls them together. And so I think that's so powerful that, you know, you can do that in lots of different ways. And I love the fact that you're taking that into schools. I'd love you to talk a little bit more about you know, what does that look like in a school setting? I mean, do you do that 
you do that with kids? And, and maybe Eric, if you want to give us an example of how music plays into that, since you have the keyboard right in front of you there, I mean, I don't know. If <laughs> I mean, it'd be, it'd be terrible to go through this whole 45 minutes yeah, an hour without hearing any music. So well, let's not waste this moment. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, I, you know, also, you know, I, I, uh, you, you mentioned how does that play out in a school setting you know, as, as a songwriter and as a musician, I think that there is one aspect of it that is that is kind of the the most obvious aspect of it, which is lyrical content of music. Um, when we do productions at the school that I teach at, I teach at the Episcopal School of Nashville. We don't do Disney musicals. You know, we do freedom songs. We do um, you know adaptations of of books that are that are that are that encourage uh, young people to talk about difference. Uh, we sing uh, uh, various songs that are about social justice and, and that emphasize their agency uh, in changing the world. So, you know, for instance, we might do uh, just some simple stuff. It's like, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And we'll have them change the words because I love humanity. I'm going to let it shine. So we'll do something like that. So we'll have them create the words. They'll say, because we love the flowers and trees. So they'll, so, so if they want to say something about their, um, their world and their respect for nature. So we have them actually think about these particular issues, these broader issues. Um, you know, another one that, that I do for them is, um, is one that you all might know uh, by uh, Woody Guthrie. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. So we'll do, you know, we pick songs like that. So they don't sing about bears and things, you know, kind of skipping through the woods. <laughs> and uh, so that's one way. Uh, the other way is that you know, the music and the arts, particularly when we're doing a musical or something, always gives us opportunity to talk about cooperation, what it means to work together, what it means to put yourself in a position of interdependence. Right. And so they, they may not be able to, art. it's kind of like what, what you say, um, uh, the impact of, of the sports uh, had for, for your kids is that, you know, through the performing arts, they're absorbing these messages, but they're also absorbing them in a context where they, where they realize that the, the, the end uh, to which they're moving uh, can only be uh, attained through cooperation. So they're learning practical skills uh, as, as they go along. So, so now, there are also other elements of a school context other than, other than just the children. So we're talking about staff, we're talking about board members, and uh, you know, we have a relatively small school, we're a little startup school. But when you start to have these conversations with, uh, with the broader population of the school, um, uh, 
you may even find that the kids tend to be a little bit more resilient than the than the adults. <laughs> and so and so, you know, not only that, we've tried to create a culture where um, those shared moments where we come together as a community, which may be our chapel service, which uh, which may be our board meetings, which may be our staff meetings and different things that we also incorporate some of those elements into those gatherings as well. So we have uh, we have common songs that we sing in the morning as a community. Uh, we have gatherings every morning. And so that has a tendency to build uh, a common language and a common sentiment among the group. Um, the other element is, uh, uh, is that, you know, our kids uh, from pre-K to fourth grade sing in about five different languages. So I consider myself to be more in that setting, uh, a social studies teacher that uses music as opposed to a music teacher. Um, and so when we do a song, say from uh, New Zealand, like Te Aroha, which means love, faith, and peace to us all. And I'm sure you know this song. <laughs> uh, then the kids learn um, some of the Maori language. And they, when I came back from New Zealand last year, I taught them a haka dance. Uh, so that they so that they would understand what that means, you know, they understand that it that that more than just a dance of intimidation, it's also um, a dance that really honors uh, the people's connection to the land. It honors uh, who they see themselves as in the world, and so now our kids begin to attach to the people through the culture. And what I always tell my kids that I work with, and even the choirs that I work with, is that music comes from people. Um, I've spent a lot of years kind of becoming a master uh, of transcultural conversation um, uh, in my work as a choir director and in my work as a musical director for children's theater is that you learn how to take these complex histories and concepts and put them in a span of, you know, say three and a half to four minutes so people can take them in. And then uh, as you know, as Homer says, is that we also have our children reflect and talk about the content of the music, talk about how they felt when they were participating in this, talk about what it means to share in another's cultural expression without appropriating it. Like these are conversations that I have with, with you know, primary school age kids. Uh, because the thing is, is that these spaces that we have, these educational spaces, this is where um, we do have opportunities to, to make an impact on these young people that they will carry into the future because you never know where they'll end up, you know. And so that's kind of how it plays out for me in a school context, uh, particularly using music and the arts. Just a quick pause in our podcast to remind you that if you haven't already taken our 10 Principles for Schools of Modern Learning audit, you might want to consider it, especially if you want to get a clearer sense of where your school stands in relation to hundreds of other schools from around the world who have already taken it. And importantly, if you want to get an even clearer sense of what schools who are well down the road to creating modern learning experiences and environments are already doing. The audit is built on 40 benchmarks that will in and of themselves challenge your thinking and your practice. And if you take the 10 minutes to complete it, we'll immediately send you your score and some first steps that you can take to close some of the gaps that you may have. I promise you it's a great way to start to identify the work you need to be doing. 
just head on over to modernlearners.com audit. That's modernlearners.com audit and start learning what you can do to move your school forward tomorrow. So, so Homer, I'm then interested in, in how you take this beyond the single school. It's an extraordinary, powerful experience that uh, Eric's talking about. And I think, you know, quite unique one. But also, I know that both of you do a lot of work beyond single lab, speaking gigs, single school. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm alluding to the scaling of your work, to working with um, not just with young people, but with board members and, and other teachers. Can you just talk a little bit about how you're doing that? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm, like, still thinking about Will's point and question, and I, I want to, like, touch on all these bases. Um, maybe I'll, I'm going to unfold and lead to that question. Um, another approach, and I think what Will mentioned about basketball and his kids and going from whatever that suburb is to Trenton, New Jersey, um, is a really great example, and I do this a lot with teachers, is for your entry point in, let's say, see here we're talking about the intersection of global competence and racial and cultural competence. And first of all, those have been very siloed. And I think mm -hmm. it has to do with the people who, like a combination like Eric and me, we realize that's pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, and so whatever the, so those issues, like somebody who's gonna do diversity work is often not the same person who's doing the sort of quote unquote global yeah. education work. And so what we find is really important and really powerful, and this does go to boards and school um, district-wide, is bringing those together. Because ultimately, we have the goal, everybody has the goal, that their kids need to figure out their way in this changing world. And the way to figure out your way in this changing world is to kind of take away those barriers between academic success, cultural competence, racial equity and competence, and global citizenship and global competence, that how do you yeah. see that as a whole? And so that's what I kind of try to do with my writing and my work. And um, so for example, the way I think towards this transformative way of thinking is through small manageable steps. And yeah. some of the small steps, because people will feel very overwhelmed. The message is very important how it's presented. So, for example, most teachers have no experience doing, you know, like doing sort of global education. Um, I encourage them to start with what you love. So you may be you may love cooking, you may love gardening, you may love basketball, you may love singing. That can be your entry point to learning about the world and learning about who else is around you. Mine your community. So going a few miles down the road where the population is very different, where there may be, you know, I was just talking to um, a wonderful educator from Minnesota yesterday who is doing a lot with rural communities. And the story in the middle of the United States is that many of the communities 
are comprised of immigrant populations that cannot afford to live in the big cities. So people think it's the big cities that are really diverse, but actually many of the rural communities in Minnesota, North Dakota, I've done a lot in Indiana, I grew up in Indiana, um, that's the largest Burmese population outside of Burma. Myanmar is in Indiana, or the largest Somali population is in Minnesota. So there's a story that's unfolding in these communities that is yeah. rich with the experience of the world. And so, you know, learning that to look around, pay attention, notice what is unfolding around you itself is a skill and that brings richness to your experience. So like, Will, your kids, they weren't doing a favor to the kids in Trenton by going to play basketball with them. Yeah. It was a reciprocal experience. And if anything, your kids were enriched by that. Oh, absolutely. And that is, that is um, something that we, you know, I really encourage um, leaders to look around and listen to the voices yeah. and pay attention to the stories of who, who are some of the people that make, you know, turn on the lights and keep the school running. Um, what's their experience? What's their story? What do you have populating your library and your media space? Mm -hmm. um, what are the stories that you're paying attention to there? So this sort of starting with what you love and then mining your community and paying attention to what's mm -hmm. there, using technology as a tool for creating deeper connections. Otherwise, I know you guys think about this and talk about this a lot. Otherwise, it's like, you know, a bank of iPads that are really not doing the job they were intended for. All mm -hmm. this ties together. Um, yeah. And with students, and, and I find like, kind of the secret sauce lately that I've been working on is to reorient, you know, this question of what do you want to be when you grow up, which is so far away. And I think adults are still trying to figure out what they want to be when they're growing up is um, what nice. problem do you want to solve? <laughs> yeah. So right. focused on what problem do you want to solve? I'm mm -hmm. working with a number of schools, <clears throat> excuse me, that, um, that has become a really wonderful, simple, motivating question. And schools where there isn't a lot of diversity or schools where there is are taking, for example, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and they are honing in on those goals and we will work with them on how, how to work with those, how to, how to focus in on a specific problem that you identify that could be having to do with the trash in your playground or it could have to do with a global health crisis they all fit into the goals everybody could have a problem that they want to solve or racism in your cafeteria you know we're seeing a lot more of that so yeah. all of this fit into this global construct of goals to solve big problems and um, that's been really exciting to see um, parents, boards, I do a lot with parents as well on, you know, kind of what are the skills that you want your kids to have to succeed in mm -hmm. this changing world. Um, and what I find is that almost more than succeeding, having your kids succeed is looking at issues of character and talking about it as a moral imperative. Mm 
That's yeah. been really interesting. We think that the parents are just focused on the success factor, but they're really concerned about kind of the, the inner life and the, the finding meaning and purpose because otherwise it's a sad future and they, nobody wants that. So all these questions kind of tie together. Um, and that's, that's kind of what's been really interesting. But the key is it can feel very overwhelming if it's too many issues and too many mm -hmm. questions. And we do bring in, for example, a lot of brain research on bias and psychological safety and all this ties together. But our job, Eric and my job, is to translate this into language that is kind of easily digestible and is one step at a time based on where you're coming from, where you're at, and how you move forward from there so that it doesn't feel like somebody else's project and it's too overwhelming. So a lot of what we do, like song, this little light of mine, that is deceptively simple. There is so much, and, and Eric has taught me a lot about, you know, the history, the sentiment, the experience of a song like that um, and it unites and it brings people together so that's that's kind of the a little bit I find this all like kind of magical to to bring it together so I, I love this conversation and um, I, I'm reminded of some other stuff that happened in our you know in our lives as Bruce knows we've actually four times had um, a set of seven Tibetan monks stay in our house for a week Wow, um, it's been just this like mind-blowing um, experience for not only my kids but for me as well. Um, and I have to tell the story; I'll never forget. Just the the first interaction I've ever had with a Tibetan monk was they they were driving down from somewhere in Pennsylvania. It was a snowstorm; it was horrible. They got there four hours late. The guy got out of the monk got out of the car, and I introduced myself and I said, "Long day, huh?" And he goes, "You know, Will, every day is the same length." <laughs> my mind was, <laughs> I knew I was in the of something much different That's from perspective but, but so my, my 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 question is though so we went to local schools around here and said we've got tibetan monks staying at our house would you like to have them come in would you like them to have them do some cultural stuff and it was like pulling teeth it was yes. really difficult to, to get i know to open up and embrace this opportunity that they had and so i'm wondering um, what, you know, and, and, and so I wanted to read this other quote from something you sent that you've written. You said, this isn't the easiest time to be a global educator, whereas like empathy, global and inclusion are becoming politicized and some feel that more challenging topics like race, religion, borders and refugees are nearly untouchable, but we can't afford avoiding these important ideas for fear of being mm. too political if we do our children and our country lose. And I'm wondering how to overcome some of the kind of built-in reticence to go there on the part of schools, right? Because I think, I know that in some of those school leaders' minds, when we said, we have Tibetan monks, they thought, oh my God, parents are going to think we're going down some cult path or whatever else. Right. So how do mm -hmm. we overcome that? I mean, how do we start conversations that are on a larger scale that will allow there to be more openness to the type of globalization and, and diversity experiences that you're talking about? Either one of you. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's so well, hard. Yeah, it is. I, I, well, I, I'll go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think uh, you know. I think that when I when I think about that is is that you know we 
the, the context that we're in, um, like what, what you're bringing up is really not a, you know, it's, it's, it's not a new problem. I think what we have done is we, uh, you know, and, and I, I, when we talk about diversity, really what we're, what I think we need to be a little bit more specific about what we're talking about. What we're talking about is integrating spaces um, that have traditionally been uh, kind of segregated. You know, we're talking about, and, and, and specifically, uh, predominantly white spaces that have been segregated when we talk about it. I know when we talk about our school, that's what we're talking about. How can we get more people of color into this space? You know, that, that's kind of usually the direction that it moves in. Um, and, uh, and so, and so when you try to introduce another element into that space, you know, there's always, uh, and historically there's, there, there has always been a lot of kind of pushback in those, in, in, in those spaces, you know, one, because, um, you know, like you said, uh, when, when you sit, when you, you, you can't, I mean, you don't necessarily know what they were thinking, but but they probably were thinking, okay, this is another religion. It's odd. Who are these people? They're not really from around here. And, you know, all of those different conversations that are a part of this broader context that has been going on forever, at least for the last probably, what, three, 400 years. Uh, you know, you're talking about uh, decades of uh, scientific uh, racism and all these different things, Orientalism and all these other concepts that we, you know, as educators talk about. Um, and, and so it is, you know, it is a hard one to get people to move to that space, uh, particularly as an institution. But I think that, you know, when Homa talks about um, this notion, these small gestures that we can make, um, you know, a lot of times what you need is one or two allies in that space that you have a relationship with personally. Um, and that may mean, uh, you know, maybe the first round, you don't take the monks to the school, but you bring a couple of teachers to the monks in your, in your home. Uh, uh, because what, what you're talking about is, is, is essentially centuries of conditioning. Um, and not just conditioning, um, you know, through traditional means, but also, you know, in our country, um, division and separation is incentivized here. You know, you, you think about it, you think about real estate and all these other things where, you know, people will pay three times as much for the same house if it's not around certain people. You know, like, I mean, that's, you know, so, and it's, a, you, know, cer you know, certain signs and signals. So we have a lot to overcome in that area. But I think that those small gestures, uh, you know, and I wanted to, to kind of allude back to this too, is that the, the, the when, when we, we have to deliberately cultivate these, these types of situations, we almost have to engineer an interaction a lot of times. Uh, but, you know, our whole society is engineered in a particular way. You know, people decided that they wanted this civilization. And it's going to take courageous people to say, well, we want another one. So this is how we're going to build it. And so, so I think that, that, you know, if we are, and we do a lot of stuff out of our home as well. Um, 
So we'll, you know, we'll bring people into our homes and kind of orchestrate interactions between people so that they can actually get to know one another. So that may be another way to look at it because these institutions have been around for a long, long, long time. They, they have a particular culture and sometimes it's just hard to crack that culture, particularly if they didn't start out that way. Yeah. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, the idea of sort of needing to engineer the interaction because of conditioning and fear is really important. And I always talk about, um, you have to find, often you'll have like one, you know, a teacher in a school who's really into these ideas who feels really alone. And they need to yeah. find who their allies are, who their champions are going to be. It could be other parents. It could be one more teacher who was maybe a Peace Corps volunteer somewhere. It could, yeah. There are like, you can start to find your champions. Um, but it's really tough. And, and the story of having nobody be interested in this incredibly rich experience yeah. um, is something... I face all the time with people not wanting to talk about these issues. And um, so it's, it's really challenging, but it's sort of, it is about finding your, finding your people. Um, the, the question that you, um, the issue of what you read about, you know, that politicized, that some of these mm -hmm. issues that are just important to talk about. And if our, you know, say you have high school students that are being deprived of analyzing the conversation around borders, around migration, around race, because the teachers feel that it's too politicized. Um, I do work with educators where I and we push back on that notion pretty hard that mm. this, I'm not going to let you politicize that away from me. I am not going to let that conversation become a taboo because you fear it's too political because it wasn't. A lot of these conversations were not considered political a number of years ago. It's become politicized and it's become really charged. So the ability to talk about it kind of takes back our, in a way it takes back our democracy. It takes back our control to um, learn to sift through that. And that is ultimately education, right? You ask what is yeah. learning and it's the ability to have these conversations and to probe what really matters and what is going to shape the lives, particularly of our children. So yeah. um, I do um, help offer language to teachers to push back a little bit. And, for, you know, on the conversation about, like, we have seven Buddhist Tibetan monks who are coming here. And, um, you know, they could come and speak about, you know, there are many aspects. Number one, we should be aware that is not violating a violation of the separation of church and state. Yeah. It is completely okay <laughs> to learn this, you know, thousands of year old practice. And this... Um, <laughs> practice that shapes the lives of millions and millions of people around the world see mm -hmm. it as an academic project or something. Right. So mm -hmm. um, we have to learn that that does not violate that line. And another really interesting thing that's been challenging, and I feel like it's the elephant in the room when it comes to 
global education is that people uh, will go out of their way to avoid the connection of what it means to be a global citizen with issues of faith and religion and belief. Mm -hmm. And we do not know how to talk about that. Politics and religion, right? Like avoid those at the dinner table or in polite conversation, but that's gotten us into trouble. And so um, if we can learn, and that's actually like a pet project of mine is to uh, research and look into this topic so that um, the fear and the barriers kind of go away because people are, you know, they're passionate about that topic, but then they won't talk about it with people who believe differently from themselves, or they'll go out of their way to avoid learning from these um, incredibly wise and rich resource people. So um, we need to learn how to have those. And I think it's okay to push back a little bit and find your champion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you made really good points there. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And I've got mm-hmm. just one more question. And then I know Will, Will wants to um, have another question before we do wrap. And for either of you, it's, it's taking a slightly different um, direction and asking what do you think technology's role is in promoting diversity and a greater understanding of the world? You know, not only what's its role, but what have been the drawbacks. Um, In the New York Times today, there was a quote that said, Netflix has become the internet's most invaluable and intoxicating portal to the parts of the planet that aren't America. And and Mm. we also know there's work, you probably are both involved too, uh, with colleagues up uh, up in Toronto, um, uh, Michael Furtick and Jennifer Carrero have an organisation called Taking It Global and, and what they've really taken on is champions in this space that they've, they've been able to use the technology in very positive ways involving hundreds of thousands of young people. What do you see technology's role is in promoting diversity and a greater understanding? Hmm. Well, you know, I, uh, I think I showed this book to Homa on our when we were in San Francisco, but I, um, I, re- I I'm revisiting a book right now by uh, Neil Postman called Technopoly, Co- uh, the surrender of culture to technology. Um, and I think that, you know, there are, as with anything, there are, there are positives and, and, and our pros and cons. I won't say, you know, necessarily negatives uh, to, to all of this. I think that, the, you know, the fact that we can have a conversation even like this, I mean, look where you are right now, <laughs> you know, that we can, that we can actually, you know, uh, speak to each other like this. And in our school, we actually do a cultural exchange with a, with a, a fourth grade class in Honduras, uh, where we're, where we, where we've been learning, uh, doing a co-learning project with them. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, and so, so it has opened up the world uh, to us. And, um, and, you know, a lot of times when we think about technology, we, we think about the screens, but also let's think about uh, uh, technological breakthroughs over the past, you know, 200 years in flight and all these different things and be, being able to just, you know, go places um, that we were never able to go. And I had I mentioned this earlier before we started the chat is that, you know, I'm doing a, 
doctorate out of the University of Tasmania. So that was because of the travel. Uh, you know, the, the first year of my coursework was done all online. The, 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 I'm doing it out of the conservatory in black gospel performance because yeah, yeah i mean so 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 the world the world is that you know that's the world that we live in and a lot of that was facilitated by technology uh, just simple things people that i knew in the states that that knew somebody in australia or the fact that my manager came to vancouver in you know 10 years ago and Googled a gospel choir and mine came up. You know, so there are so many things about that, just even on a very basic level that, that has, that has co connected us. Um, but I also think that there is still uh, a great efficacy in being in the room with people. And, you know, one of the advantages that we have because people have been traveling is that you know, even though we can, my, my grandfather used to say it this way, uh, and this was more uh, in relation to, to service. He says that, and he was a, a deacon in the church. He says that sometimes we will walk over someone that's homeless on the way to church. Uh, and if, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, if we, if we sometimes, I notice that particularly in America, in America, uh, a lot of our philanthropy is outside of the country when there is a lot of space for even global aspects of philanthropy and altruism right in our neighborhoods. I mean, Homer, you mentioned this, uh, the largest Kurdish population uh, is uh, in the United States is here in Nashville. Like, go figure, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, 140 languages spoken in the, in the public school systems here in Nashville. 30% of the kids speak a language other than English when they go home. So the world is here as well. So I think that the technology um, uh, should not prohibit us from connecting to the world that is right here at home. Um, I think that I think that if it's, if it's used in a way that kind of supports uh, things and, you know, everything is used for whatever means. It's like, you know, we can choose to, to use, use our uh, knowledge of atomic energy to make a bomb or we could use it to provide energy for people. Um, and so I think that we're, we're at a point now where we're so inundated with technology and that it's, that it's evolving at such a fast pace. Uh, it's like Dr. King said, he said that, he said that, uh, that humankind's uh, scientific power has outrun its spiritual power. We have guided missiles and misguided men. So when we think about this, this um, uh, when we think about technology, you know, technology and science without uh, kind of ethical reflection about how we employ it, uh, I think is, is, is a key. Uh, but it has opened up our, uh, our capacity and potential to reach out to the world. But, you know, the world is also right here with us. You know, it could be 30 minutes down the street. You know. and, and I would just add to that on technology. I think that the responsibility in education to teach and to model 
Um, how to use social media for social good is mm -hmm. really important because they're on it regardless of what schools acknowledge. Yeah. Yes. And so <laughs> modeling um, and demonstrating, like, what are the Instagram accounts or what are the other accounts that are um, using their platform for something bigger than what they're wearing or, you know, something just um, that isn't that impactful. I mean, what they're wearing could actually also be impactful. There's an argument for everything. And yeah. so showing that is, I think that's an important part of global citizenship. It's an important mm -hmm. part of having difficult conversations with people who, um, that may be a safer place to have a difficult conversation or to learn yeah. from someone who looks different or believes different or lives different from you. Mm -hmm. That could be the place that you engage and so bringing that together for social good can also be really powerful, but it's deliberate. Yeah. I also think, too, is that uh, speaking of, of technology, and uh, an example that I oftentimes use is, uh, is the Black Lives Matter movement and how that uh, essentially started with a hashtag response to what happened with Trayvon Martin in Florida. Like that was a hashtag. Um, that that really resonated with with a lot of people, and uh, there's a story this this that that is told about uh, when um, uh, when uh, when when uh, Michael Brown was shot um, in uh, in uh, St. Louis. Uh, when the when the kids were in the street, they were actually tweeting with young people uh, that were part of the Arab Spring. Uh, about how to alleviate the effects of tear gas. They were tweeting in real time. Uh, and now what you see happening with these young people is that you have, you have people that are a part of, that were a part of that movement, a part of Dream, the Dream Defenders that was also out of Florida, another uh, multicultural group of kids that, that formed around that tragic incident that are traveling back and forth that have spoken at the UN since that are traveling to, um, to Palestine, Israel, and having conversation with Palestinian and Israeli young people about how they can resolve the conflict. So you have these, you know, black and brown kids, this multicultural mix of kids coming from Florida now going all over the world, doing these things that are bringing people together. Because, uh, you know, and, and their, their common culture, their common language, a lot of times is music, hip hop, technology. It's, it's brilliant. And so there are all of these little pockets of world peace that are happening in the world. And I think that another way that we can leverage that technology is to tell those stories. Because these people are telling their stories in these spaces. They're telling their stories on Instagram. They're telling their stories on Facebook. They're having conversations on Twitter. And uh, um, I mean, I think this, this is probably one of the most exciting times to be involved in education because now the world literally is the classroom. Like you can reach out to any corner of the globe right now and learn just about anything that you want to learn. 
Well, listen, guys, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I, I keep thinking that, you know, there are physical walls and then there are metaphorical walls. And I, you guys are doing an amazing yeah. job of breaking down those, those metaphorical walls that exist between the, you know, just the, the schools and the communities and the conversations that we're having. It's, it's just urgent work and um, really, really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for taking time today and sincere best wishes on your work. Um, we can find your work yeah. at onenesslab.org, correct? And we'll also other places to find your work in the show notes. But um, sincere best wishes on your work moving forward. Really appreciate it. And thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank and thanks for so having much. us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for and all see you're you next doing. Week. <laughs> see you next week in New Zealand. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bruce. By the, by the way, uh, I just turned the, the live stream off. Uh, just one slight correction to your interpretation um, of one of the pieces of music you were talking about, Eric. Um, there is a much uh -huh. cultural un, um, rationale behind the haka. It's the mm -hmm. key way of telling the Australians we can't play rugby. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, that but is. See, that's fun. That is a fun. That like that's a fun way to bring that <laughs> together. And uh, yeah, that's awesome. Oh that man, I, I you know I, I I've fallen in love with rugby and then also um, Australian league football. Oh. Well, yeah. he's a he's wow. a bomber. Well, he's a bombers fan. So I'm, 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 all, I'm all. What now? If you don't like well, Essendon, if you don't like Essendon, then don't talk about AFL. With, with <laughs> uh oh, I'm I'm done. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I I love the first time. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh my god! Like you can just do anything in this game. You can yeah. run, kick, throw. You know, I was like, that's how we used to play football when I was a kid in the field. <laughs> I just, I just can, I still haven't gotten over the shorts. That's my problem. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't. Too, a little too tight and a little too short. You know, it's just, I, yeah. I don't what's up with that, but you know, anyway. Yeah. Hey, um, if you guys, if you guys, uh, Lynn sent you a link. So if you guys want to just hop on, we're going to talk about doing a course. Um, Bruce, I okay. think we told you that. So. You want to take a couple minutes and then meet us at that at that Zoom room. Um, Lynn will be on. I'll ping her. So okay. About in five minutes. She's been listening, She's been listening as well. So yeah. Cool. We'll just reconvene there. I really something. enjoyed the conversation, guys. I'm not in that call, but thanks, Homer and uh, Eric. Thank really you. enjoyed it. And you know, Eric, and look, ping me when you're coming down here. We'll get together. I certainly will. Why don't you uh, send me your send me your email and and all of that? You have you 